Thank you, uh, Randy, for leading, and uh, Julia for reading the scripture so well. It was uh, tremendous, and I appreciate that. And uh, I suppose in some respects, uh, the chapter or the section of scripture that we have this evening that we have looked at is possibly one of the hardest sections of scripture in many respects for uh, churches uh, today to be able to uh, feel comfortable with and to understand. I remember uh, the very first time that I went my fa- to, uh, with my father to uh, the country of Poland, and uh, <clears throat> I remember uh, being with him and we went to a church in the city of Bidgosh up on the, um, the, the Baltic coast. And uh, the thing that struck me that was uh, strange was the fact that Whenever there was a prayer in the church, everybody stood. And when it came to singing a hymn, everyone sat down. Now, to me, it seemed completely the wrong way around. But the idea and the understanding was that there was to give respect to God in the fact that we stand uh, when we pray. And in fact, as you look at the scriptures, you can see that that is something which uh, perhaps uh, we should look at. As for singing sat down, I don't go along with that one at all, because uh, if you want to sing and you want to really get uh, into um, singing well, then you need to be stood to do that. However, traditions are things which so often in our lives and in our churches, uh, maybe in our families, uh, maybe within uh, uh, a congregation even such as this, we discover that some of us come with preconceived ideas as to how things should be done. There's a proper way of doing something. There's a way that we need to respond to it. There's a way that uh, is correct. There's a way that's proper. And of course, if somebody doesn't follow the way that uh, we believe things should be done, uh, then we can be somewhat critical sometimes. We can allow ourselves to become judgmental and we can point the finger and maybe even to the point of saying, well, you know, how can this person actually be a Christian if they don't do everything in the way that I feel that they should do so. Now you would think to yourself that the subject matter that we're looking at this evening and as we look at the scriptures and we read it together you've got to say to yourself well you know it's very very straightforward it's very simple what the Lord is speaking about here in Mark chapter 7 of Mark's gospel. And yet as you read the scriptures you discover that far from being straightforward far from being shall we say, a simple thing to understand, it's actually very clear that there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of tension that's taking place here within these sections of Scripture. And we discover that far, as I say, from being simple, it's actually a very, very serious issue that is being spoken of. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a chap called Warren Wearsby. Um, uh, I guess you could call him a theologian. He's passed away. Now there's at least one hand-waving. Well, I I had the privilege of uh, taking Warren Wearsby to different churches in Britain when he came over to um, speak. And so I drove many miles with uh, Mr. Wearsby in the car beside me. And it was fascinating talking to this man. When you're sort of like uh, on a three-hour journey from one place to another. And his understanding of Scripture was just utterly phenomenal. It was just incredible. Uh, There was every nuance he understood and he knew. Uh, And when you say he understood and he knew, he was very gracious and he was humble. And he said, Sim, I don't know everything, but I do believe that as we read God's word, God reveals to us the things that are important. I remember taking him to a large uh, Anglican church 
And uh, he said, I'm not sure how this evening's going. The Lord's laid on my heart to preach on baptism. And I was thinking to myself, now that's going to be interesting. And uh, he was able to speak on the subject of baptism in a church uh, that was uh, an infant baptism church, and yet there was still unity because he understood the scriptures. He understood the important things that needed to be said. Warren Wearsby made this statement, and it stuck. He said, people who revere man-made traditions above the word of God eventually lose the power of God's word in their lives. Let me say that again. People who revere man-made traditions above the word of God eventually lose the power of the word of God's in, of the word of God in their lives or God's word in their lives. And you know he's absolutely right because the moment the scriptures are replaced by perhaps things that we have thought through, we feel comfortable with, we're happy with. The moment that we place those standards above God's word, we find ourselves in serious trouble because all of a sudden God's word becomes closed to us. God's word loses its power in our lives because we have decided that what we think is right, what we, we believe to be best. And so we have to understand that. Now, this was something that the Jewish nation had had many problems with for a long time, going right the way back into the Old Testament. And we look at the history of the Jewish religious leaders, for example, and we see that they so often could honor their traditions, the things that they thought and felt were important, far above God's word. Now, as we make a statement like that, we're thinking to ourselves, how could that possibly be? And yet I want to say graciously, right from the outset of the message this evening is, we need to examine our lives. Because it's just possible that we have got some tradition, we've got some ideas, we've got some thoughts that we have come up with, which we have placed something like this on the level with God's word. And suddenly we see somebody who's, who's, who, who we're not sure of and we're judging them externally. We look at them and we're saying, well, hold on a minute, they don't look right. There's something that doesn't seem right, perhaps the way they dress or something. And suddenly in our heart of hearts, we begin to start asking questions rather than listening to the words that are coming from their, dare I say it, their heart? Not their, their mouth, but their heart. Rabbi Eliezer, and I'll tell you about him in just a moment, he said this, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Think about that statement for a moment. He who expound scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Eliezer ben Shemuel, or Eliezer I, was a rabbi of the second century, frequently cited in rabbinical writings as simply Rabbi Eliezer. He was a, of priestly descent, he was a rich man, and he acquired great fame as a teacher, not of the word of God, but of the tradition of the Jewish law. And by Jewish law we're talking about all the pharisaical laws that have been added. The Mishnah, a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud, records 
it is a greater offense to reach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. Is it possible that anybody could make statements like that? And yet they have done so. They continue to do so. It beggars belief to read these statements and perhaps cuts us to the heart. One of the things in our fellowship here, and we spoke about it this morning, and as we looked at the way that the church is growing around the world, and we see the way in which the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus is being shone into the darkest corners of our world, and we see where there are laws that are being introduced to try and stop Christians, lock them up, throw the key away, and yet the church just will not stop. Why? Because of our traditions? No. Because of the Spirit of God and the fact that Jesus said I will build my church and nobody will stop me from building my church and yet so often we come along and it's almost as if we can say well you know we, Lord it's great but we can do things a bit better you know if we have a few traditions that we throw in the mix here we can make sure that things are done better and this of course is where it begins to go terribly wrong now Mark 7 and the verses that Julia has read to us could be described as a drama that's taking place. Um, the stage is set there in verse 1. Um, the Pharisees and some of the scribes have come together from Jerusalem. They've sent the big guns out, if you like, to try and sort out what's going on. They want to deal with this man, Jesus, and what he's saying and the fact that the people are listening to him and following him. And so they come and they get together and they're spoiling for a fight. The Jewish leaders are openly hostile toward our Lord Jesus at this time, and indeed the ministry which he is engaged in. And now we should note that the Pharisees and the chief priests, of course, had a responsibility to ensure that what was being said, what was being taught to the people, was right and proper. I mean, we would accept that that is how it should be. We recognize that that was one of the responsibilities that they had, to go and to listen and to make sure. And we see accounts in the Scriptures where they had heard other people who had come along with so-called prophetic words to be able to share. And they had been able to state what was right and what was wrong and so on. And so it was right that what Jesus is saying is being uh, tested, is being looked at, is being understood as to whether it is right and whether it is what the people should be hearing. Because the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were indeed the shepherds of Israel. And it was their responsibility, to, as I say, to make sure that heresy was not being taught. It was their responsibility to make sure that the truth was being taught. And of course our Lord had no problem with the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When our Lord spoke, he told the truth. And of course it was the truth that was causing them the problem. Now the account in Mark 7 that we have here is not the first time that the shepherds of Israel had been criticized by God. If you go back into Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 34, it's a wonderful chapter. It's got a very negative section to it, a very positive section to it. Now, in your own time, please take uh, time to read Ezekiel 34. I'll just read the part, the more negative section, which talks about the shepherds of Israel. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak against the shepherds of Israel. Speak in my name and tell those shepherds, The Lord God says, It is bad for the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. 
Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You kill the fat sheep without feeding the flock. You have not given strength to the weak ones. You have not healed the sick. You have not helped the ones that are hurt. You have not brought back those that have gone away. And you have not looked for the lost. But you have ruled them with power and without pity. They went everywhere because they had no shepherd. And they became food for every animal of the field. My flock went many ways. Through all the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were spread over all the earth. There was no one looking after them. So you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, my flock has been killed and become food for wild animals because they have no shepherd. My shepherd did not look for my flock. They fed themselves, but have not fed my flock. So you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God says, I am against the shepherds and I will ask them for my sheep. I will stop them from feeding the sheep so they will no longer be able to feed themselves. I will save my sheep from their mouths so that they will no longer be able to be food for them. And then the rest of the chapter speaks about God's graciousness and his love and he wants to look after the sheep and he looks after them. So as I said, the stage in a sense is set here. And along come the shepherds, the shepherds of Israel, or at least they're supposed to be the shepherds, and they immediately begin to look for fault. Now there's a lesson there for us, isn't there? Because all too often one of the first things that we're concerned about is finding fault with other people. It's something that we need to be concerned about because when we meet other believers, when we come together and we, uh, and we share fellowship with them, we shouldn't be coming out to look for fault necessarily. Of course, if the Word of God is not held as it should be, then there are things that we need to immediately start to look at. But we discover that this is what the Pharisees wanted to do. They begin this whole drama that has been working out or is being played out before us by looking for fault. And on this occasion, they accuse the disciples of failing to practice the Jewish requirements for ceremonial washing. Now, I just need to explain that we're not talking about the importance of washing your hands before you have something to eat. And in, in a culture that didn't have knives and forks and things in perhaps the way that we do, you have to recognize that it's important to wash your hands. If friends, it's important to wash your hands if you have got a set of knife and forks to be able to use. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what our Lord Jesus is speaking about to these people. This isn't what was uh, being spoken of. It was something much more serious. We should note that these washings were nothing to do with hygiene. We're not talking about washing your hands in the way that you do just to keep them clean. We should also note that the ceremonial washing spoken of here were not demanded by the law. The law that God had given to his people. So you can begin to see now very clearly that this is something totally separate to the word of God. Totally separate to the requirement that God had laid down. No, the ceremonial washings that's referred to here in Mark chapter 7 were all part of the tradition that the scribes and the Pharisees had given the people, had added to their burdens, if you like. In fact, our Lord Jesus had spoken about these burdens. If you turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, and it's interesting to be able to just follow these through. This morning we looked at a number of scriptures, and so this evening we will do so as well. So Matthew 23, verse 4. 
And we read here, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries. Now phylacteries were the little boxes that contained the scriptures and that they used to bind to their foreheads and to their arms. So they would make their phylacteries bigger. Just <laughs> Mine's bigger than yours, okay? This was what was important to them because they wanted people to notice and enlarge, and, uh, and enlarge the borders of their garments to the prayer um, um, uh, scarf and so on. They loved the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, and so on. So we see here that they, the scribes and the Pharisees, were quite happy to put burdens on people, weigh them down, make them feel guilty if they were unable to perhaps keep them all. So we find that our Lord Jesus is now being accused now we should remember that this is not the first time that the Jews had accused Jesus of breaking the traditions. Uh, we know that there were many occasions, in fact. The Sabbath traditions, of course. Our Lord healed people on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, the chief priests, were unhappy about this. There was the occasion when uh, the disciples are walking through the field on the Sabbath and they pick the heads of the grain and they rub it in their hands blow the chaff away and eat it. And they had seen it. Now it's really important that we understand this point. Our Lord Jesus never broke the law of God. The law that his father had given. You see, if Jesus had broken the law that God had given, and this helps us to understand this scripture, this section of scripture so very well, what would that have made him? A sinner. But our Lord Jesus didn't break the law that had been given by God. And so we see here in the section of Scripture as he speaks to the Pharisees and the teachers and he explains to them what is going on. But it is not the law of God that has been broken. If he had, he would not have remained sinless. And if he had not remained sinless, how could he have saved us? Because on the cross he could not have saved us. Jesus was innocent, but the Jews were eager to accuse him. And when they saw his disciples eating with what they described as defiled hands, they pounced on him because this was the weakness that they saw. And so a sensible question to ask is why would such a seemingly trivial matter upset these religious leaders so much? Why would they feel compelled to defend their ceremonial washing so vigorously? What is it that's motivating them? What is it that's driving them? Well, for one thing, these leaders resented the fact that as our Lord came along, he appeared to openly flout their authority. After all, these practices and traditions, and this is the thing that we so often have to, have to think very carefully about, they've been handed down from generation to generation. We can look back, perhaps over our grandparents, 
and even to great-grandparents, and we can see and we can hear and we can remember some of the things that they spoke about, about the way that we need to behave, the things that we have to do, the things that we don't do, and so on. Because all these traditions had been handed down, therefore they had the authority of time, the authority of age, if you like. Now the Jews called the tradition the fence of the law. Now you have to think about that statement for a moment because you see they had turned everything upside down. They, or to them, it was not the law that protected the tradition, but it was the traditions that protected the law. Now, we may be critical of the Jews for putting their tradition first, before the word of God. We might think that it is absolutely and wholly wrong that Rabbi Eliezer should have said, he who expounds the scripture in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. We might be utterly appalled by the very thought of a statement like this. But I'm going to say to you, it's just possible that some of us fall into the same trap that the Pharisees had fallen into. Perhaps even here in our fellowship. Occasionally I hear people who remind others of the traditions and that you have to behave in a certain way. But the requirements that are pressed are not God's demands, but the demands of men. Some of us have been saved out of backgrounds and lifestyles that others of us can't even begin to imagine. Some of us have got no concept what other people have come from. And yet we can be critical and we can point the finger. Perhaps if we went to a church in Nepal, as we spoke of this morning, we would say, I'm not sure about some of these things that are going on, these traditions. And just maybe we don't understand fully where we've come from. But here's the thing. God is so gracious. And he's able to reach down and he can pluck us out of some of the most terrible circumstances that we have found ourselves in. And he can make an absolute treasure out of something that was ugly. Something that to the rest of us we were afraid of and yet he reaches down and he does this and all of a sudden we are judged on our appearance as though that were much more vastly more important than what our heart says and what's going on inside us but you know there's also something else that's going on here with the Pharisees and the Jews. Notice the word special. Now I notice that the translation that Julia read from didn't uh, have that in verse 3. So if we look at the NKJV which uh, uh, is the, uh, the version that I've uh, um, grown to really appreciate. 
Uh, and we look in verse 3, I believe it is. Uh, For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, I'm not sure what washing your hands in a special way is, but they had it to a T, and if you didn't do it, you were marked out. They knew that there was a problem. Now, what they're doing here is declaring to everybody else that they are special and that other people are unclean. I thank God I am not a sinner, declared the Pharisee, like these others, as he prayed on the street corner. And just perhaps we're tempted to do the same thing as we meet other people. You see, the thing is that God can reach down to the guy who's sleeping under a cardboard box on the corner of the street whose hands are dirty. God can reach him. And we might walk past and say no. In verse 4, when a Jew went to the marketplace, the fear was that on his visit he may come into contact with somebody who was a Gentile or even worse, a Samaritan. They rubbed shoulders as something was passed over the counter. And so they had to have a ceremonial washing to show that they were God's special people and that they should be separate from the world. And of course it is correct that they were God's chosen people. But the emphasis here is that they were more loved than others. But the reality is that these washings simply indicated a wrong attitude. A wrong attitude towards other people. They also conveyed a wrong idea of the nature of sin because what was going on here had totally, totally confused them as to what sin was. And as for personal holiness, they were completely confused because they had thought that it's the way I live that enables me to be holy. And they had failed to recognize that it was a heart change. Jesus has made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that true holiness is a matter of inward affection and attitude and not just outward actions and associations. The pious Pharisees thought that they were holy because they obeyed the law and because they avoided external defilement. But Jesus taught that a man who obeys the law externally can still break the law in his heart. And that external defilement has little connection with the condition of the inner person. Are you more concerned about the fact that the person that you see two or three rows in front of you, don't get all edgy here, just bear with me, perhaps has a tattoo? Are you more concerned about that rather than what their heart is like? Are you more concerned about someone's appearance rather than about the state of their heart? Are you more concerned about the fact that you saw somebody driving into Timmy's before church 
And that meant they bought something on Sunday rather than the state of their heart. Rather than where do they stand before God. Are you judging someone primarily on their outward appearance rather than the words that you hear from their heart? As we've already commented, truthfully, you may have little understanding of the place that they've come from. You don't know what's gone on in their life. You don't know about the abuse that they came from. The pain that has been inflicted upon them. The state of utter hopelessness that they have been lifted out of by God who reached down and picked them up and rescued them and marked them with his Holy Spirit and said, this one belongs to me. Are you worried about the fact that they're not wearing a suit. Now I look around and there's not very many suits here this evening, so this one's a, I'm on, on relatively safe ground here. I'll tell you a funny little story. Uh, I needed a suit for, um, like, you know, doing weddings and funerals and things. And so I went to Zabian's in Dundas Street. Now, if any, it's, a, it's sort of like a men's tailor's uh, shop. Uh, they've moved from one side to the other, I see now. And I uh, got on very well. The guy was really friendly uh, to me, and uh, he measured me up, and I explained... Uh, we were just talking about, uh, about uh, life in general. And he said, oh, so where do you live then? So I, I said, oh, in Norwich. So he said, ah, the Norwich rail is down here. I was fascinated by this statement, okay? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is gospel truth here, all right? So, so he said, the Norwich rail's down here. I said, wow, show me. So we went down, and there was a rail about so big, and every single suit was as black as the night as it could possibly be. And he said, you'll be wanting a tie. And he had a, a rack of black ties. Absolutely no variation whatsoever. So I said, thank you for showing me the Norwich rail. I really appreciate that. But do you have another rail for, um, uh, for, for, uh, for others? And he said, oh, so you're not like the others then. <laughs> so at this point, the, the conversation is, I mean, it's fascinating what, what people think and what people hear. So I said, well, I, I guess I'm not entirely like the others. Um, but uh, uh, so he said, well, maybe sir should stay slightly more conservative as one does live in Norwich. And so I took his advice and went for one with a slight stripe in it. And I've been very grateful for that ever since. So it was fascinating to, uh, to hear that. But you see, it's a good lesson to understand here. It's a good lesson. Where are you looking, inside or outside? And even more important, what about you? Are you looking on the inside in your own life? Or are you focusing on the outside? It's very important. Because Jesus says it's important. Now, don't get me wrong, it's true that some traditions are helpful. Helpful as reminders of our rich heritage, perhaps as a cement that binds generations together. 
but we must constantly be aware lest tradition takes the place of truth. Because when it does that, we're not saved. We can't deepen our relationship with God in our hearts. Sometimes the confrontation that takes place as we review these traditions can be horrific. Families can be ripped apart. Relationships broken. But as long as we do so graciously, as graciously as we can and with the constant help and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we must continue to see the truth in the place that it has to be. Mark 7, verses 6 and 7, our Lord quotes from the Scriptures from Isaiah 29, verse 13. And I've got to say to you, the quotation that he chooses, the quotation he uses from the Scriptures is extremely powerful. It's extremely blunt. And it says this, This people honors me with their lips, but not with their hearts. In fact, the quotation says, But their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. Did you hear that? In vain they worship God. Their worship isn't acceptable to God. And, 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 and listen to this statement. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. How is that possible? And yet, friends, it is. Again, going back to Poland with my father and walking into... Uh, one of the big cathedral churches in Warsaw, and seeing what could only be described as the idolatry of the cult to Mary. It, it was just mind-blowing. Because the tradition had taken over and the Savior was pushed to one side. There will be Catholics in heaven, don't get me wrong, because the requirement is faith in Jesus Christ. But faith in Mary won't save you. And to emphasize what the scriptures had already stated, our Lord adds, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. How is this possible? The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And all too well, you reject the commandment of God and you keep your tradition. Verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have had handed down. And many such things you do. Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the Jews head on. Why? Because they were not preaching the truth. And instead they preached the tradition of men which whilst might sound good could not save them. So the drama before us continues to be played out. The tension is high. Accusations and confrontation has taken place. And the next act, if you like, has to be condemnation. As we've noted, our Lord quoted from Isaiah 29, 13. He had shown from the scriptures, from the prophets, what was wrong with the arguments that they had. 
And then our Lord returns them to the law. In verse 10 he says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Now why does he talk about this in the middle of washing your hands? Because there was another problem that the Pharisees had. And they'd worked out a way of negating the law to enable them not to give their mum and dad any cash when things were getting tough. This Corbyn business that is spoken of, we can have a whole sermon on it. But the point being is that they had found a way of negating the responsibility that they had in the law. And so our Lord Jesus is basically saying, look, the prophets and the law, and you're standing against both of them. How can we demote the word of God to a lower place than the other writings of men, to catechisms or to the word of the fathers, the church fathers, to the doctrine of the church, rather than the, to the doctrine of God and his word. How is this possible? But it happens. And it happens often in churches today. We see sometimes in church services that poems have taken the place of God's word. Other writings that sound good, that make people feel happy and good, instead of God's word. You see, in defending their traditions, the Pharisees eroded their own character and also the character of the word of God. They became hypocrites, play actors who religious worship was practiced in vain. Friends, true worship must always come from the heart. And it must always be directed by God's truth, not man's personal ideas. How tragic that religious people would ignorantly practice their religion and become the worse for doing it. Is it something that just affected the Pharisees? No. We see it all the time in churches today. Notice the tragic consequences, and again, if you can open your Bibles, keep them open at uh, chapter 7, and on this point we uh, close our uh, words this evening. Just look at, the, look at the order of events that take place. Notice the sequence here. First of all, teaching their own doctrines as God's word. Is that possible? Well, what does Jesus say in verse 7? He says, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 7, laying aside God's word. We read in verse 8, the very next verse, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Rejecting God's word. We look at verse 9, the very next, uh, next verse. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you must keep your tradition. And finally, robbing God's word of its power. Because that's what we do when we put tradition ahead of God's word. Verse 13. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things that you do. And we too may be guilty of replacing God's truth with tradition and that really brings us just very quickly to the last part of the drama that we have here is the declaration our Lord Jesus announced to the whole crowd that the source of holy living 
is always from within. It's never from without. In fact, as you listen to our Lord speaking here, we find him declaring null and void the entire messianic system of clean and unclean, verses 18 and 19. Now we know that the law itself was not set aside until our Lord died on the cross, Ephesians 2, 14 to 15, Colossians 2 and 14. But the principle Jesus announced has been true throughout the ages. In every period of history, true holiness has always been a matter of the heart. And so friends, this is the requirement. It's our heart. Have we come to faith? Have we put our trust and our hope in the Savior? Has our heart been renewed? Has it been changed? Have we repented of our sin? Have we turned our back on our old life? And have we called out to God to save us? Have we had a heart transplant? Because that's what we need. And when we have that heart transplant, suddenly, instead of looking at the outside and we look at these two girls here and we make decisions about them, we say, what's their heart? What do we hear them say? And ourselves, we suddenly discover that instead of trying to live the Christian life, we discover that because of the Holy Spirit living within us, because Jesus lives within us, then we can become more like him as we allow him to live within us and to change us and to make us into the people that he would have us to be. Turn to the Savior now, call to him and call to he alone for him, for his salvation. Never trust in your own understanding. The Bible tells us that clearly. Or indeed the understanding of another. But trust in him for your salvation. And he will save you. Call upon him, rely upon him. And he will never let you down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Let's stand and sing this hymn together. And as we sing the words, ask yourself the question, what's my heart really like?